Last week, I began my message by sharing a story of someone who was critical of my teaching, saying that I was too repetitious. And I have to confess that I sympathize with my critic. I, I, I understand the criticism because I, too, tend to not like repetition. For, for instance, I rarely ever rewatch a movie or reread a book. Any, anyone with me? Like, for me, there's just so much new stuff to go and see. Like, why would I take the time to rewatch something? Like, it takes a very special movie for me to finish it and say, I got to see that again. Because usually one time, that's good for me. But if you think about it, that's kind of like a type of arrogance. Like, to think that just you watch it one time and, and you got it all, you, like, you understand it completely. My son Salem and I uh, did something that I... I couldn't, can't really recall ever doing before. We went on a son-dad date where we went out for dinner uh, beforehand, and then we went to the movies. And we went and saw The Avengers, Infinity War. We had a blast. How many of you have seen Infinity War? Okay. Now, we went. We had a ton of fun. However, there was one member of my family who was not too thrilled that we went and saw it, and that was my daughter, Megan. Because she, like me, really likes movies, and she really wanted to see it. And then she goes and has friends at school who went and saw it, and then begin to ruin the movie for her and tells her all that takes place. So in August, when my daughter's getting ready to head off to college, I said to Megan, hey, could we do like one last daddy-daughter date? And she's like, oh, that'd be great. I was like, well, whatever you want to do, let's, let's do it. She says, can we watch Infinity War? Okay, for my, my kid, I'll do it. I, I'd seen it, loved it, it was great, but sure, for you, let's rewatch it. Well, that little date caused a jealousy in Salem because Salem is not like me. In fact, Salem loves to do the same thing over and over and over. He's read Harry Potter like four times, all right? He, he will watch the Star Wars movies just ad nauseum. Like, for me, it's like, okay, once, great, done. He's like, no, there's more to see, there's more to get. Oh, crazy kid. So the day before we had to return the DVD, Salem sees it sitting on the counter and he says, hey, can I watch it? All right, sure, buddy. Go ahead. Go watch the movie. So it gets done. It's like, how was it? He says, I learned so much more. Because see, he's a little smarter than I am. Because sometimes it takes two times, three times, five times, 10 times to watch something, to hear it before you really start to get it. And the thing is, when you do something on repeat and you suddenly have that aha moment, I think part of what really blows us away is realizing I've seen this, I've read this, I've heard this, and it was there all along and I was missing it. And suddenly, boom, it just gets us. I think that is why John teaches in his letter with such repetition because he knows that if he just says it once, we're not necessarily going to get it. What he's got to do is help us to hear it two and three and five and ten times. Hoping that on one of those moments, we will have that aha. Where we start saying, I get it. Because for John, it isn't just trying to get us to kind of know about it. He wants us to get it to where it's intimate. We know it. We can almost recite it. Because he knows that when you can begin to recite it, it's now a part of you. And now the things that he's going to command us to do today becomes a lot easier. And it just starts to become 
natural. So Heavenly Father, as we get ready to jump into 1 John, I pray that we would hear this and we wouldn't get turned off by the repetition, that instead we'd lean in to realize there's a reason John is emphasizing these things because God, it is ultimately you who wrote this through your servant, John. And so we ask that you be our teacher today, that you would penetrate our hearts, you'd penetrate our minds with what you want us to walk out of here with today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you today, go ahead and open it up to 1 John. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, hopefully you have your bookmark already there like me. Uh, if you are new to Riverwood, uh, we get into the scriptures every single week. I'm going to have the scripture on the screen for you today, but feel free to stop back by our Give and Grow table and pick one up and use that. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, we've got two different translations back there. We will just give you that Bible. That could just be yours, and you just make it your everyday Bible. If you've got a phone with a Bible on it, here at Riverwood, we are totally comfortable with that, so feel free to pull out your phone. And if you have a smartphone without a Bible on it, I'm going to strongly encourage you get a Bible, download it to your phone. And that way, when you're sitting at the DOT waiting for three hours just to get your stupid photo taken, I'm not speaking from personal experience, uh, you have a Bible there. That way you're not just playing Candy Crush or surfing Twitter like I would, that you have your Bible and you could use that time to read. As you're opening to 1 John, let me just kind of remind you what we talked about last week. John talked a lot about the gospel. Uh, in fact, in chapter 1, verse 7, he, he starts in on it. He, he says that it is the blood of Jesus, his son, who, which cleanses us from all sin. He's talking about the gospel. Jesus goes to the cross, dies for our sins. They're, they're forgiven. It's his blood. But then he, he doesn't stop there. Verse 9, he says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's explaining more about the gospel. It isn't that Jesus died on the cross and his blood forgives us of our sins. It's that we've got to confess the sin and he washes our sins sin from us, just completely removing it. The the scriptures say that as far as the east is from the west, so our sins are removed from us. But he doesn't even stop there. He goes on even deeper. Down in chapter 2, we saw in verse 1 that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, that Jesus goes before God and says, I've taken care of it. Their sin is forgiven. He advocates on our behalf. John doesn't even stop there. In verse 2, he says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. We saw last week that that word means to appease the anger of a God. But God, his wrath wasn't against us. It was against the sin. And Jesus appeases that wrath by dying for us. He was the propitiation for our sins. And then he goes on, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Over and over and over, in just this short little section, John is going back to the gospel. He keeps pointing back to Christ. We saw in our first week in this, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he kept pointing at Jesus. Well, now last week we saw he kept pointing at the gospel. And he's trying to lay a foundation for the things that he's about to say, because he's about to tell us something that we need to do. And so he's got to lay the foundation. What is the motivation? And that's what he gets into next. So join me, First John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. When when John starts there and says, and by this, I think he's referring back to the gospel. That it is by this gospel that we can do something. And what is that? It's that we can know that we have come to know him. The him here is Jesus. And I don't think John wants us to just kind of know Jesus the way I know the Kansas City Royals. Like, I could tell you the players on the Kansas City Royals. I might be able to tell you a few stats about them. I could even maybe tell you a few stories. 
but I have never met a single one of the players. I don't have their phone number in my phone. I, I couldn't go out to dinner and just hang out. I don't know them. I know about them. Instead, I think John wants us to not know Jesus like I know the royals. I think he wants us to know Jesus like I know my kids. Like I, I know my wife. Like, like the way I know many of you. That, that, like there's an intimacy. Like it goes beyond just kind of some surface stuff and knowing a few facts. Like it goes down to knowing heart, emotion, personality. He wants us to know Jesus intimately. And he gives us a clue of when we know that we know Jesus, not just know about him where we could tell people the story, but that we truly know Jesus. He says this, if we keep his commandments. Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross for our sins, but also to show us what it means to follow God, to, to have this connection with the Father. And part of that included some commandments. And so if we're going to say, yeah, I follow God, we need to keep these commandments. But what John is saying is we got to know these commandments like we know Jesus. Some of you know that when I was in college, I got a, a bachelor of science in music. It sounds a little weird to say a bachelor of science, but at my school, if you got a bachelor of arts in music, you had to do a foreign language. But if you did a bachelor of science, you could pick your own minor. And I felt called into ministry, so I did a Bible minor. I wanted to be a worship pastor. Well, when my wife and I went to Venezuela and worked at a missionary kid's school, they found out that I had a music major with an emphasis in piano. And so they said, hey, Aaron, would you teach some piano lessons? I thought, all right, I'm, I'm here, I'm willing. I'm going to tell you it was torture. I taught 17 kids piano. And the torture part was not the time with the kids. I actually really liked the kids. I really liked that half hour time with them. No, the torture came after because as I would walk home, I'd eat dinner, and I'd be doing my lesson plans for school the next day, I would have these little kid piano songs stuck in my head, and I was being tortured all night long. It's amazing I'm not in an insane asylum. It was awful. Okay, I exaggerate, but it, it, it was pretty bad. Um, but I enjoyed the time with the kids. Some of my students were just natural. It was so much fun to like give them an assignment, see them come back after a week, and they'd just sit down and just play. And I just sat there in awe because I was not natural like that. So it was so much fun to see. Many of my students were more like me, where they had to really work at it. And, and, and I didn't mind that. As long as they were put, willing to put in the time, be teachable, it, it actually was kind of fun to see them really make some progression. Because I knew that even if they weren't going to ever do anything with piano, like the skills that they were learning to, to work hard and, and learn something new were just going to be able to apply into multiple areas of life. So I knew that this was doing them a lot of good. But there was one type of student that did drive me a little nuts. And that was the students when I'd say, hey, what's that note? And I'd point right to the note on the music page. And they'd look at me like... Mr. Bird, I, I know that. But okay, if you know it, what is it? And then you could almost hear the gears in the head going. And they'd be looking, going, okay, that's a treble clef. The lines then means like every good boy deserves fudge. It's at the top F. See, I know it. I'm going, no, if you knew it, you wouldn't have to sit there and have the gears turn. You would just immediately know. In fact, you wouldn't even have to go, ah, uh, it's an F. Like you would just play it and you would know exactly which F it is on the keyboard. A, a proficient piano player could just have music set right in front of them and they just start playing. It's just like a natural language to them because they don't just know about music and don't just know how to read music. It's become a part of who they are. And that's what John wants for us, that we can't just sit there and recite some of the facts about Jesus, that we could you know, recite a few memory verses from the Bible, 
but that we know this, and this just comes naturally. It's just a part of who we are. And that's what he starts getting into about this idea of if we keep his commandments. Join me in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, when you see the author talking about walking, it sometimes doesn't mean putting two foot, you know, you're using your foot one foot in front of the other to make distance over the ground. It actually means the way you live. And that's what John means here in verse 6, that we are to walk in the same way as Jesus walked. In other words, to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. Now you see a little bit of where I get this from. This is what he's calling us to. That, that He's saying, all right, if you know the gospel, you will keep his commands. And the way to keep the commands is just to know Jesus you see, Jesus did not give us a command that he wasn't already fulfilling and obeying because he's the author of it. It's just a part of who he was. So he wasn't asking us to do something that he himself wasn't already doing. And so if we're going to truly live out our faith in Christ, we're going to walk in the same way as he walked. We're going to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. We're just going to naturally begin to fulfill these commandments. But John still hasn't told us what the commandment is. He, he's hinted at it, but he's still not there yet. Verse 7, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So he's saying this commandment that I'm about to tell you what it is, you guys already know it. Like, like it's, it's old. It, you've already heard this. But notice what he says next in verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's saying, all right, you, you guys have heard this before, but yet it's going to feel fresh. It's going to feel new. It's kind of like when you put the movie on and all of a sudden you go, oh, how did I miss that? Because you'd already been seeing it. It's old to you. And yet you saw it in a new way. See, John has stolen this whole thing from Jesus. He's, he's already heard this new old command. And he's going to tell us what it is in the next three verses. Verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you forced me to sum that up, into one little phrase, I'd have to say, it's love one another. That's the command, to love one another. Look at, look at verse 10. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. That's what he's driving at. This command that he keeps hinting at all along the way, he's saying it's to love one another. That's what we are to do naturally, because that's what Jesus did for us. John is stealing this directly from the source. He was right there when Jesus said in John chapter 13, in John's own record of, of Jesus' life, John 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is driving it in. Got a new command for you guys. You got to get this. Love one another. I wonder if some of the disciples, when they were listening, when Jesus said, a new command I give you, if there wasn't something inside of them that made them lean in, like, what, a, a new command? He's going to tell us something new. We, we, we like new. So maybe they leaned in. But yet when he says, I'm going to give you a new command, I wonder if some of them pulled back. Because they're thinking, Jesus, there's already 613 laws in the Mosaic Covenant. And now you're going to attack on another one? We got 614 now? But yet what Jesus was giving them as new really wasn't that new. It's actually old. Leviticus 19, 18. God had Moses record this, if I can get to my page. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Here it is. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we know Jesus knew this. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He doesn't just recite Deuteronomy 6.4, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He also tacks on Leviticus 19.18. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love one another. Then why is Jesus saying this is a new command? Because it had been there all along. But I think the people kind of got lost in the Mosaic Covenant and that the Pharisees were working so hard to try and keep everything all together. And Jesus is like, guys, don't worry about that. That stuff falls into place. If you start getting these two things right, if you have your love for God and your love for others, and if you love one another, a lot of this stuff just begins to work itself out. Now, I think that idea of loving one another appeals to many, many people in our society. I mean, back in the 70s, Coke had a song, you know, I want to give the world a Coke and teach them all to sing. You know, in the 80s, it was, you know, a bunch of pop stars saying, we are the world. You know, there's this idea that we all come together. And so it, it sounds wonderful. Sounds great. Until you have to love that crazy uncle with his really outrageous political views at the family reunion. Or that coworker who, who just kind of drives you nuts. Or the person down the hall or down the street or the kid at the lunch table. Now this loving one another, it, it isn't so great, is it? It's hard. Like when your kid is yelling at the top of their lungs in the Walmart aisle, you don't exactly just burst with love for them. You're actually reacting out of embarrassment. Again, not speaking from personal experience. How do you do this? I want you to notice what John does next. Verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, if you are like me, you're probably looking at going, okay, he's writing to children, fathers, and young men. And he just, he kind of keeps repeating this. What, what's his point? Well, first of all, the little children there are not truly little kids. John sees himself like a spiritual father. If you go to 2 John and 3 John, you see him refer to believers in Christ as little children. 
right? So he just sees himself like as his father saying, I love you guys. I care for you. So I'm writing this to help you. But also notice what he says to each of them, to the children. He says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sakes. Who is it that forgives our sin? He's already explained. It's through Jesus, the blood of Jesus. To the fathers, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. Who is that? Well, we already heard that back in chapter one. It's Jesus. Uh, notice what he says to the young men. You have overcome the evil one. How, how did they do that? Through Jesus. Like as you start looking at this, you suddenly realize to each group he's writing to, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So how are you supposed to love one another even when they're really difficult to love? By keeping your eyes on Christ. Because if you put your eyes on them, all you're going to see is the failure. But if you keep your eyes on Christ, he now works in you and through you, and you're able to love those that are really difficult to love. It means we get to know Jesus so well that we don't just know the stories. We don't just know the facts. We can't just recite the stats. We know him as if his number was in our cell phone and we could call him up at any moment and he can lead and guide us. And it just becomes natural. And we find ourselves even loving those who are difficult. But John, he, he puts a warning in here to us. You see, he wants us to love those around us, but he doesn't want us to love the world around us. He knows the human heart. And so he's got to put in this little disclaimer, this warning. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Think if I stopped and we broke into small groups and I asked you, hey, share the story of someone who fell in love with the things of this world and, and it left them emptier. I, I think most of us could probably identify someone. Maybe it's someone from our family. May, maybe it was someone from work or, you know, back in high school. May, maybe it was an, an ath, you know, famous athlete or celebrity. We saw them look like they got everything and, and yet they were really left with nothing. But John's not writing about those people. He, he's writing to us. Because he knows our hearts. As we saw last week, he said, if you say you're without sin, you're deceiving yourself. And so he's got to write this to warn us because he knows that if we put our eyes on the things of this world, we begin to long for it. And we start to fulfill the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the, what was it, the uh, pride of possessions. My iPhone is four, I think maybe five years old. I can't quite remember when I got it. My battery lasts like maybe three hours. I'm having to charge it like, you know, three times a day. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And so I've been intentionally hanging on until Apple last week announced their new iPhone, hoping maybe that the price would be at a place where I could get it. This is absolutely ridiculous because this is Apple we're talking about. But I still was hoping that I might be able to get the, a new phone to get rid of this old cruddy thing to get something new. I was falling for the pride of possessions, thinking if I just have that, then I'll be happy. How many of us have fallen for that? Thinking, if I just could have that person, I'll be happy. If I could just have that job, if I could just make this amount of money, if I could just own that car or have that pair of shoes or wear those certain clothes, then I'll be fulfilled. And yet John knows it is just like salt water. If you were stranded in a boat out in the ocean and you ran out of drinking water, you start getting really, really thirsty. And suddenly you see all this water around you and it starts looking really, really good. 
But if you start drinking it, what happens is the salt and minerals in that ocean water, they actually cause an imbalance within your cells. And your cells actually begin to expel more water. And you would actually begin to urinate out more than you just drank, leaving you even thirstier, more dehydrated. And so you drink even more, and you actually end up killing yourself faster than if you had just gone without. John knows that if you and I give in to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions— We will think we're getting something really good that's going to satisfy our thirst. But notice what he says there in verse 17. He says that these things are passing away along with his desires. It will fade. It does not satisfy. It does not give us what we're looking for. It actually leaves us thirstier. That's why he's got to warn us. If you are going to fulfill this commandment to love one another, you have got to be filled with the living water, with Jesus. May you drink upon him. Drink in this gospel. Let this be what sustains you. Don't fall for what the world says. Here, you need this. You want this. It's good. Because ultimately, it's not. What you have to do is put this gospel story on repeat in your life. And as you have it, just repeat over and over and over. You begin to discover and understand in new ways exactly what Jesus went through for you. You begin to understand more and more just how hideous your sin really is. You begin understanding more and more just how much God loves you. And it just humbles you, it compels you, and it fills you to where you find yourself not going after the things of this world. You actually, you actually begin to lose your taste for them. One year ago, I, uh, I decided to change my diet radically. I uh, had been suffering migraines about once a month for the previous five, six years. And it, it wasn't as bad as I know a lot of people who have migraines way, way worse than I. Um, but it was just at a point where I, I really was tired of seeing lights and, and puking. Uh, and so I just decided, all right, I got to take care of this. So I, my family had encouraged me, go get an MRI. I knew that it was going to say there was nothing. Well, there was a brain there. Um, but it, there was no like tumor or anything. Yeah, my, some of my family and friends might wonder if their MRI was accurate. But anyway, I uh, ended up, uh, you know, n- nothing was wrong. And so they just, you know, prescribed me medicine so that whenever it comes on, take this, do this, and yeah, hopefully you can kick it. Well, I uh, ended up seeing a video of this girl who uh, shared her story of being in a really, really bad car accident where she suffered a, a horrendous concussion. And one of the things happened was she not only felt like her brain was fuzzy, she just couldn't think clearly anymore, but she started having migraines almost weekly. And it was a friend of hers who recommended that she switch to the keto diet. Well, the keto diet is this big fad right now of you cutting out all, you know, sugars and uh, carbs to uh, basically take on just proteins and fats. And, you know, they say that you're going to lose tons of weight and, and all these things. But this girl didn't do it to lose weight. She did it to try and stop the migraine. She was desperate. And in her video, she claimed it worked. And so I was desperate enough that I thought, all right, I'll give this a try. And if it doesn't work, I'll just go back to how I was always doing things. So I began to cut out sugar. And I'll be honest, it was really, really hard. Really hard. But I was bound and determined. I would much rather go without a chocolate chip cookie than a headache. So I cut it out. Well, after some time, I began to notice my taste buds changing. And I got curious. My wife makes these amazing chocolate chip cookies. That like I used to joke that if you ate one, it was the end of your life because you'd end up eating like a dozen. Like, like you couldn't stop. They were so delicious. But I was just curious. So I took, broke off a piece and I ate this delicious cookie. And it was disgusting. 
couldn't stand it. I was like, oh, why would anyone want to eat that? It, it, it's awful. At, at Christmas, fudge used to be my favorite thing to eat. Oh, it, it tasted worse than mud. It, it was horrendous. Like, I used to drink lots of Mountain Dew. Now, I, I can't even handle one sip. Like, my taste buds have changed. Now, I am not a, a total keto a- advocate. I still cheat and have ice cream. That I haven't lost. Some ice cream is still too sweet. But I still have some ice cream. Like, I, I had a bun with my brat the other night. Uh, you know, but, but overall... I've been doing it. You know why? Because the migraines have been gone. I don't miss them a bit. And so I will gladly give up sugar. I think what John wants us to do is to lose the taste for these things in the world. Instead, what we find so satisfying is Jesus. That if we just drink in him and we feast upon this gospel, that this becomes so much of who we are, we just naturally live this out. And we find ourselves not missing the things of this world. It takes time. It's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But I believe it's God's vision for us. It's God's dream. I think God has a bigger plan for your life than you have for your life. God wants to use you in your home, at work, at school, with your friends, with extended family, to be a blessing to them. And it's going to come as you continue to surrender your life to Jesus letting him be the center of who you are so that you can begin to walk in the same manner as he walked. So if you want to see this happen in your life, if you want to naturally live out this command, keep your eyes on Jesus. Make it all about him. Put the gospel on repeat in your life. And you just might see something new. So Heavenly Father, I pray you would help all of us to put you first. God, would you help us to be Jesus-centered people? Would you help us to, to lose the taste for the things of this, this world around us? That, that we would, as John just kept saying, go back to Jesus. We go back to this gospel. That We just continue to put you first. God, I want to see my church family be the most loving church family anyone has ever encountered. I want us to just naturally live out this idea of loving one another. But I know for that to happen, It's got to be because of what you have done for us, God. So would you just help us to be just absolutely enraptured at the idea of your love for us and that we would not be the type of people who just try to keep it to ourselves, but we just become conduits that your love flows through us to those around because there is a world around us that is hurting. They desperately need to know Jesus. And so what you want for us to do, God, is to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. Because as we go out to these people who are hurting, who are broken, you use us to minister to them. So God, help us to be so centered upon you that then this just comes naturally. That it just becomes a part of who we are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.